following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 2, 13 to 22. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. But then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We've been preaching through the Apostles' Creed, uh, going line by line throughout. We've probably been in it for 10 weeks or so, if I were guessing. Um, And we finally have come to the line, which is typically the most confusing for most Protestants, Uh, It was definitely confusing for me growing up as a Lutheran. I grew up in the Lutheran church uh, all throughout my childhood. And I just remember professing this on a regular basis when we say, I believe in the holy Catholic church and the communion of saints. And I was like, wait, what are we talking about here? Like the the holy Catholic church, I thought we were Lutheran, right? Martin Luther, the whole 95 theses, nailed on the, the door in Wittenberg, right? There's something there, like I know we're not Catholic, right? We're called Lutheran. So I, I was just like wondering what in the world are we talking about when we profess that we're, we believe in the holy Catholic church? And there's a lot of confusion here because you use that language and then the communion of saints and we're thinking like, are, are we like, are we Catholic? Like, are, are we Roman Catholic? Are we praying to saints now? And, and so I was just like super confused, like what is going on? I, know, I, I didn't know it that much about church history, but I knew enough to know that if Martin Luther were to hear Lutherans say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, he'd probably have an issue with it, right? Roll in his grave a little bit. But that, that is not at all what we're saying when we profess as Christians, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints because the Apostles' Creed was written and was being used among the church long before the Reformation ever took place. This is language that has been embedded in the church, and this word Catholic is an old word that's been used in the English. It means the universal church. It's sort of a wide net. Universal means, uh, or Catholic means universal. Like Just like you have a, uh, if you were to have universal taste, it means you've got a broad taste. It doesn't mean that you like going to, to Latin masses or you know, prayer vigil type stuff. You have a Catholic taste. It means that you like a variety of different things. Very universal. It's a wide net. And so what we're saying here is that we believe that there's one church, that Jesus went to the cross. He paid with his own blood the ransom to buy himself, to purchase for himself one church that is composed of all Christians through all space and time. And you'll notice here that it's one church, it's singular. We don't say, I believe in the holy Catholic churches. 
We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It is this one church. And what this means is that since Jesus came, there is this unbroken line of gospel-believing people, and there will be, by God's grace, this unbroken gospel-believing line of people until Jesus comes back. This is the church. It doesn't matter what denomination you associate yourself with. It doesn't matter what nationality or what culture you're from or what time or what era, it's all, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we're all part of one body, one church, one bride. And so hopefully just even talking about this, that clears up a little bit of the language here, the confusion of this line of when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Now, if you were to go back and think through what we've talked about so far and the things that we say, I profess or I believe or each time we say that, it's followed by, I believe in God the Father Almighty. So I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. Last week, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so we, we, we're saying, hey, I believe in the triune God, this, this God who has revealed himself, one God in three persons. This is who we believe in. And so you might think, okay, I believe in God. And what's strange now is that we're shifting from this beautiful God of creation, the God of salvation, the God of sanctification. And now we're saying, I believe in the church. Seems kind of strange, right? I believe in God, I believe in the church. Now, the reality is for some of us, for maybe a lot of us, it's easier for us to say, I believe in God, than it is to say, I believe in the church. I know that there are people in this room who have a really hard time with that for personal reasons. Throughout your life, maybe you've been hurt, you've been offended, there's been some sort of dynamic of being involved in a church which has hampered your way of saying, I believe in the church. You say, well, I, I see the churches here, I see the buildings throughout our city, and, and in one sense I know they're around, but I don't know if I really bought into, I don't know if I really believe in the church and the agent that God has made it to be. We look through history and we can see the blunders throughout where the church isn't anything really spectacular. They're just a bunch of messed up people who, who claim to believe in Jesus. And so all the time, it's not uncommon, if, you, if you're having these conversations with non-believers or skeptics or people who, who are outside of the church to say, you know, I like Jesus. Jesus seems like a pretty cool guy, right? But it's the church that I have a problem with. Because I've seen the hypocrisy, I've seen the judgmentalness, I've seen all of these things that seem like dysfunction and it makes it hard for us to say, I believe in the church. Now part of the problem with this is that there are a lot of organizations, there are a lot of, there are a lot of groups of people who come together under the banner and in the title it says Church. Right? And just because the word church is in a name, it doesn't mean that it's actually a church. We just dove into church membership uh, meetings where we kind of process through this. What is the church? What are the marks of the church? All this stuff. And one of, really the main thing here is the church is where the gospel is preached, so there's a gospel message that is proclaimed, that people are believing the gospel, they're taking it in, and with believing in the gospel, there's a gospel culture that's formed. And in a lot of places, a lot of churches, it's lost that gospel message, 
The gospel culture has sort of faded away in the background, and what's emerged is this self-righteous, this judgy, hypocritical, critical, gossiping community of people that, that just kind of seem cold and dead, and if you don't really fit in with them, then this isn't really going to be a place for you. And if that is what a church is, if that's what your experience is, and, and that's why you push away from the church, then I would be with you. I would be saying, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm looking for the nearest exit. And the truth is that that isn't the church. That this, this isn't what Jesus had in mind when he told Peter, I'm gonna build my church. See, the type of church that Jesus is building is attractive. There's something about it that when people look in at it, it's like, man, I want to be part of that. At the same time, there's something that's challenging about it. Right? Being part of the church, there, there, there's cultural norms and patterns and, and, and things that we, we grasp as a culture that the church actually pushes against and says, you know what, that's, that's really not what we are. And so the church is both attractive and challenging and when we look at the church through the lens of Scripture and how, how Jesus and the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 2 tells us what the church is like, what we can do, we can do, do two things. First of all, we can openly and honestly admit the flaws of the church. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we come in every week and in our liturgy we have the confession of sin. We do that together. It's like we haven't lived up to the family name. We haven't kept our vows. We haven't loved our God with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. And so there's a lot of things that we can look at and say, you know, as part of the church, we don't uphold this. We can be honest about our flaws. But the other thing, that if we have this lens that Scripture gives us to look at the church and understand what the church is, it allows us to be relentlessly optimistic about her. It's this paradox, really. The flaws... And so we can look at the flaws and without being condescending and, and, and critical and uh, uh, cynical about the church, we can see it honestly, but at the same time, man, I, I see the future for the church is bright. And so that's what I hope to show you here as we work our way through Ephesians chapter two, and there's, there's three headings that, that I wanna break this down in. As Ephesians two goes, I think we're gonna see what the church is. Paul is gonna use some language to help us see uh, some, some metaphors to help us see what the church is, what it's like, and what it's not like. Number two, I think we're gonna see the obstacle that stands in the way of us becoming that and really living that out. And three, I wanna show you how that obstacle is ultimately overcome. So here's point one, the, what the church is. Now, if you're with me, uh, we're gonna jump to Ephesians chapter two, verse 19 is where I wanna start. And here is where we start to see some of the language that Paul uses of these two metaphors. Ephesians chapter two, verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, what, what, we, we gotta pause here, because what are the saints? I, I kind of touched that in the opening. What are the saints? We, we typically think of these, these people that have real, lived like super godly lives that in the Catholic Church specifically that get elevated to the sainthood. But, but the way the scriptures speak of saints is anyone who professes faith in Christ. And, and in professing faith in Christ, here's what happens. That our sinfulness gets placed upon him. He becomes our sin and he exchanges for us his righteousness. So we are credited with Christ's righteousness. So in a way, we can say that we are saints. That, that, that's, that's a title that we as Christians can claim. And we can say, you know, I, I did not live in a saintly way this week. I, I stumbled, I fell, I sinned. 
but positionally, where we stand in Christ, that we are made holy, we are saints. And so that's what, what Paul is saying. He says, you're no, lo- you're no longer strangers and aliens, outsiders, but you're fellow citizens, speaking of heaven, in the, in the kingdom of God, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, if you comb through those, that, those few verses here, you, you, you can pull out, there's really two main narratives or two main uh, metaphors that, that Paul is using to help us understand what the church is. One seems deeply personal, and the other one seems kind of impersonal. Uh, one seems relational, the other is more structural and systematic. But, but in putting both of these two things, which seem sort of juxtaposed in a sense, together and overlapping them, uh, Paul is giving us, uh, uh, he's superimposing these metaphors to give us and enhance our understanding of what the church is. So here's the first piece, the, the personal piece. Verse 19 begins with this personal and relational language. And, and, and really what happens, he goes from wide into narrow. Paul says that you are fellow citizens with the saints. So what he's saying here is that, that you have some similarities. You have some, some commonality here that you share your citizenship with the fellow believers. It's in this way that there's a general commonality. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone on a vacation uh, abroad or, or overseas or you know, just anywhere outside of the United States. You've gone on vacation and you're at a resort or you're someplace and you happen to run into other people who are from the States. Now, you're kind of in this foreign land. You don't really know anybody. You're kind of on your own island. But as soon as you meet these people who who share your citizenship as U.S. citizens, there seems to be like a natural connection that happens. You you connect to them. It's like, I have a commonality. I'm in a foreign place with a lot of strange people, but I've got this commonality with you where I can say, hey, we kind of belong together in some very broad sense. Now, that's kind of what Paul's saying, that you share citizenship with the saints, that you have this commonality, this general commonality. But then he moves in on this. He, He narrows in. It gets more personal than just sharing uh, a place of origin. He says that you actually are of the same household, belonging to the household of God. Now what this means, Paul is, is moving in from this general to this very specific, and he's telling us that with the fellow believers, with the fellow saints, you are family. That if you are in Christ, if you call God your father, you're adopted into this family. You have brothers and sisters among the church. Now, Cyprian, who's an old church father, says this. He says, I think uh, Augustine quotes this maybe, or Calvin, somebody quotes this a lot, but he says, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. There's, if you, you say God is my heavenly father, this puts you among a body of people who say, yeah, He's my father too. That makes us siblings. And so this means that, that together Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ. And you see this language all throughout the New Testament in the letters that the Apostle Paul writes. So he's, dear brothers, dear sisters. Right? This is common language talking of the family identity. Paul's saying, listen, you belong together as a family. Now it's one thing to say that you're family, 
It's one thing to use familial language, but it's another thing, a completely different thing to live like family. Now you can come into church and say, hey brother, and you can, you can mean that to a stranger, it's nice to see, but, but what, what Paul is getting after here is that we actually work this out, what it looks like to be a family of God together. And this is one of the unique things that we get to do because in the church universal, when it's all the saints through all space and time, we don't really get to work that out. We can say that, that I'm brothers and sisters in Christ with, with people who are in Nigeria, Christians who are in Nigeria, but I don't know them. But here among this congregation, among this, this local church, we get to exercise what it really means to be family. And that's one of the things that we're really focused on at Sacred City Church. We say that, that, that the only way to make disciples, the only way to grow in the gospel is in community with being in part of, part of this God's family and living on mission. And so the way that we do this at Sacred City is through missional communities. This isn't like a cool fad. This isn't something for like the super involved Christian. This is, this is for people who have the basic understanding that I've been adopted by God. I'm a child of God and I have siblings. And I'm gonna live that out in community. So we do this by sharing life together through everyday rhythms. Once a week we get together and share a meal. It's an intentional time for us to be together, to pray for one another to study God's word together, to find people in our city to bless and to serve. But it goes beyond that one night of the week that we set apart. It's like we're, we're trying to live life on life together and it's messy and it's imperfect but we're really striving to live out this identity that we have as family. We want to know and be known. We want to care for other people while being cared for ourselves. We want, we want to hold people accountable while being held accountable ourselves. This is what discipleship looks like. And this is what we're doing as we're the family. We're all trying to become like our daddy. Right? And this takes place in some really practical ways. In my time of being part of the initial community, I, I've seen people's weddings play, paid for, cars, Car repairs made, help people buy cars. Um, I don't know how many times I've helped people move, right, because that's what you do in your family. We've provided meals for people when there's a new family or, or a death in the family, some sort of event that needs care. We've stepped into some of those really practical things, but there, there are also, and we can highlight those, and there's tons of evidences of that throughout the life of Sacred Church, but some of the more profound things that are happening here in the church, of, of living out this family identity is that the fatherless now find their father. Ultimately in the heavenly father, but there's also this sense of spiritual fatherhood. Right? With those who, who maybe don't have kids of their own now receive kids, more kids than they could ever hope for here in the family of God. It's a place where people who experience trauma in their family of origin, people who come from abusive backgrounds, and they've had these, uh, they've been sinned against, they've had um, an experience of family that isn't, doesn't even line up with what God had intended it for, and so some of that stuff forms us in a certain way, and, and the church, living in the church and giving yourselves to the family of God, it's a way that God rewires our brains. And we relearn what it's like to relate to people, to find the affirmation and the encouragement and the growth and the shepherding that we long for. It, it, the church, as we function as a family, 
is a cure for loneliness. God is pulling out people who feel isolated and alone and, and bringing them in. And when you see the church doing this, there's something so attractive about this. I've had, I've had a lot of friends that I've been on mission to that have said, you know, my church experience just seemed like nothing like how I describe what my church family is like. It's been cold, it's been lifeless, it's like people are judgmental and it's, it's, it's messy. And then, and then when the church is actually functioning as it ought to be, where, where people are living out their true identity and being real, right? They're honest and open and vulnerable and they're not being condemned for it, but they're being loved to their best. People look at that from the outside and say, there's something special about that. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that the people who are on the outside will know you are his disciples by the way we love each other. See, this is the type of family that the church is when it's at its best. Arms wide open, welcoming, loving, and not in a superficial way, but in a way where we really love people so that they would become their truest self in Christ. See, that's the type of church family that we are called to be. So that's the first metaphor Paul uses. The other metaphor is, is a metaphor of, uh, of a building. He says the church is the dwelling place for God. He uses this holy temple language. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, God dwelt in, in a temple, a special sacred space that was devoted for him. In the wilderness, there was a tabernacle. When they moved into Israel, they actually built him a beautiful temple, a place of worship, and each one of these um, buildings, or each one of these structures had very exact specifications. The reason for this is that, that God wanted and intended for his, his sanctuary, his dwelling place, to be something beautiful, something where, where you step into this physical space and it seems transcendent, something where the physical space exposes the greater reality that God is supernaturally dwelling here. A place where heaven meets earth, where the presence of God is palpably felt and revered. Well, this is one of the beautiful things about having a church building. Like, we, we kind of get a sense of that. We step in this, it's actually been almost two years, I think it says two years ago, to the date when we moved into this space. Now, if you were with us before then, we were meeting in a gymnasium. Uh, we had some odor issues to kind of work past in this gymnasium. It was really hard to get a sense of transcendence. Holes in the drywall, right? Just, you don't step in a room like that and it's like, oh wow, I really sense God's here. <laughs> it's like, no, I really sense that there have been teenage boys here is what it was like. But you step in a, a room like this, beautiful architecture, as long as you don't look too close, right? Beautiful architecture, draws your eyes up, gives you this sense of transcendence. See, this is what the, the temple, this is what the tabernacle was meant to do. To provide some architecture and aesthetics that, that make people realize, man, there's beauty here. There's transcendence. Now here we see in the New Testament that this changes. See, after Jesus is crucified, the temple is destroyed, 
And that's okay because God says, I am going to make my forever dwelling place in my people. This is what Paul is saying when he's using this building language. He's not talking about a brick and mortar building. He's not talking about a literal building. He's talking about the people of God that are assembled, that are gathered, that are put together. In fact, if you look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says that we are living stones. Christian, you are a living stone being built up as a spiritual house for God. And we see this in verse 22. There are many pieces. He uses this language of being joined together, being built together as one structure. Upon this this the structure which is built upon the foundation of the apostle and the prophet. He's saying here that this is a historical faith, that we're not reinventing something, that, that through space and time, God has been communicating to his people what he's going to do. The temple was pointing forward to this reality that the church, the people, would be the temple. And of the structure, the cornerstone is Jesus. That's what verse 20 is telling us. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, cornerstone being built upon Jesus. And this isn't some rinky-dink little shack. Like The church that Jesus is building, Paul is telling us, this church is a fortress. He tells Peter, the church will not experience the gates of hell that press up against it. They will not be victorious. The church is strong and durable. It's a place of refuge and shelter. See, the church in itself is beautiful, but it's also a place of comfort. It's a refuge for those who are hiding, that need retreat from the storms of life. Now you notice in both these metaphors, in the the familial and and in the structural, what happens is that Paul is is saying that there are smaller pieces in the church. Each each individual Christian is is a piece. So there's a sense where the individual is validated, but the individual is brought together in order to make a whole. So so this is what it's saying to us, that, that the church... Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, doesn't play along with our individualistic tendencies within our culture, right? Where it's me and I, it's about me, it's my idea, it's about my world, my concert. No, 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 the Apostles' Creed, Scripture is telling us that the church isn't about you. You're in it, you're part of of the building, you're part of the family, but it's not about you, You're, you're, you're Many members being brought together in one, one building, one body. That's what Romans 12 tells us, that, that we as Christians have a corporate identity. It's like when, when Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, we don't pray, my Father in heaven. Like we can pray that in a very personal way. He taught us to pray as a family, our Father. Now, even in the creed, when, when we say, I believe, that, that, that singular pronoun, the creed was meant to be said together. We, we don't just go and profess this creed in our, in our bedroom, lock ourselves in a prayer closet and profess. It's meant to be 
together. We together are taking personal ownership of doing it among fellow believers. And so in this, it pushes against the cultural narrative of of individualism and places us within this corporate body. And in this, there is so much beauty. God takes all the pieces and unifies it. See, this is something that we just long to experience, to experience this unification of being brought together. Because if you give yourself to this individualistic mindset, eventually it will burn you. Like eventually you'll find how unsatisfying it is. But here to be part of the church, we get to experience the beauty of the unity. So that's what the church is, but, but here's the reality. There is an obstacle. There's an ultimate obstacle standing in the way, and Paul identifies what that obstacle is in, in one word that's repeated a couple times throughout verses 13 through 16. Paul says there's hostility. What stands in the way of the church being a family, being this building, this structure that's joined together, there's hostility. And he highlights this within the first century, uh, highlights this cultural divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. This is a big deal. Because in the first century, the Jews and the Gentiles couldn't, couldn't be more different. The Jews were God's covenant people. They were, they were privileged in the sense where they had access to God and his covenant. They were, even if you back up a couple of verses before what we read, they, have, they were part of the commonwealth of Israel. They had this heritage, but the Gentiles didn't have that. They were outsiders. It was like the Jews and everyone else in this world, and this was cultural there were cultural practices that differentiated them. There were ethnic and political and religious. You could just go down the line. In almost every single way, except for the fact that they all breathed air, that they were different. They didn't see eye to eye at all. And so this hostility, you could sense it. It was so strong that the language Paul uses to identify, he says, there is a dividing wall of hostility. That there are clear lines drawn that you're on this side and I'm on this side. And the reality is that we look back and the temptation would be to say, hey, you know, that was something that they experienced back then in the first century, the Jews and the Gentiles, really messy. We figured it out, we've sort of evolved past that. But the reality is we haven't. And it didn't start in the first century. This has always been around. There have always been walls of separation built between us and them ever since the fall in Genesis chapter three. It shapes how we think. It's this, even within culture, it's like when we do join together, when we are in some sort of community, it's sort of tribalistic, right? We're together with like-minded people who think like us and hold the same values as us. and, And so we see these divides based down politically and there's Republicans and Democrats and you're either with us or you're with them. You see it racially between whites and blacks, socioeconomically between poor and the rich, You see it uh, in the educated and uneducated. You see it even in the Quad Cities, a sense of it, because there's literally a river dividing it between Iowa and Illinois. There's some sort of hostility that surfaces in all of us. And this hostility causes us to link arms with those who are like-minded and disdain those who think differently. And so what happens is we create homogenous tribes and we pit them against one another. And this is 
deeply ingrained in us, so deep. Starts at a super early age. I've been sensing this with my oldest son, Kuiper. Um, Carrie mentioned that Becca and I were gonna go take a, a trip out to California to watch the Raiders play in the Oakland Coliseum before they move out and move to Las Vegas. And, and so uh, I'm looking forward to that. But, but one of the things that I'm doing as my uh, godly responsibility to raise my child in the way that it should go is to train him to be a good Raiders fan. Um, now, I, I have respect for all good athletes. Like, I can look at athletes who are, actually some of my favorite players to watch play are on the divisional rivalry team. So it's like, I hate to see them doing well, but there's part of me that loves to see them do so well. Uh, but, but still, there's, there's this rivalry between the Raiders and a few other teams. And, and I'm trying to tell my son, like, what, what the teams are that it's okay to kind of root for quietly. Like, it's, as a Raiders fan, it's okay for me to root for the Bears, except for last Sunday when they beat the Bears. Uh, sorry. But, but I'm trying to teach him, like, okay, the couple teams that we don't like, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Denver Broncos, right? Those are teams we try to stay away from. They're, 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 they're rivals. And so, but what happens is I'm, as I'm, like, trying to gently lead him in this direction and, and affirm his affections for the Oakland Raiders, what happens is that there's like nastiness that gets brought in when, when I tell him we have some rivalries. There's teams that we don't necessarily like. And so uh, my chiropractor is a, is a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. We always go in and we talk about football when I get adjusted. And Kuiper will ask, like, why are you friends with him? <laughs> he, li- he likes the other team. Right? Or he'll see somebody wearing like the, the orange and blue of the Denver Broncos, and, and he's like, Daddy, do you like that guy? He's like, I don't know the guy. <laughs> you, you see this, like you choose sides, and you, you're on that team, and then everybody else, it's like, away with them. And so even in this silly thing, we can see how this starts to get played out. You see how racism gets passed out. You see how cultural superiority and socioeconomic status and education where you live, how you grew up, all of these things really take root in a very young age. And the reality is if, if they don't go unchecked, we live our whole lives with this. We, we live our whole lives with this us versus them mentality and it only gets worse with age because as you get older, you, you feel like you have the liberty to say whatever you wanna say, whatever comes off the top of your head and so hurtful things get said. There's no filter. It runs so deep, and because it runs so deep, we shouldn't be surprised when this ugliness rears its head in the church. When we see the dividing wall of hostility surface among the people who are called to be God's people. The reality is this tendency for hostility doesn't go away when we enter through the church doors. What typically happens is we just get better at hiding them. We, we get better at masking our hostility. It doesn't go away unless we're, we're being intentional when applying the gospel in our lives. But we learn how to play nice. We, we, we sort of let it go under the radar, let it go dormant, but it's still there, festering inside. Now, if you're just coming to church on a Sunday morning, you might do a pretty good job at you know, keeping it under the radar. Yeah, you're probably... You can come in for an hour and a half, play nice, and then go on your way, and then walk out the door, and you still have some of these, this hostility that's sort of building up. 
But if you live in missional community, that stuff is gonna get exposed. Because in missional community, a missional community isn't comprised of people who look exactly like you and believe the exact same things you do politically or socially. It's a diversity of people. And so you're gonna be in community with, with people who voted for the other guy or the other lady. Right? There, there's gonna be a mix in your missional community of where people stand. And, and it might be, uh, politically is maybe the biggest thing, but you see all, the way you raise your kids. Right? What school you send them to. There's all kinds of factors where we start to, to make these a, sort of a hobby horse and, and find identity or find purpose or find meaning in a specific thing. And everybody else who doesn't find meaning in the same thing is on the other team. And the danger in this is not knowing what this looks like in your life. Because it's not a matter of if you have hostility or if you have preferences or if you have some sort of dividing wall in your life. It's a matter of what that is. And if you can't pinpoint it, you're living in a very dangerous space because what's probably happening is you're saying things that are hurtful to fellow believers. Your your ignorance is clouding your vision. You're making secondary things primary things. And in this, you're contributing to the dysfunction of the gospel family and the lackluster appeal that the church might have. There isn't anybody who's not responsible to some degree for this. In fact, this whole week I was... My, I think this may be why I had a hard time writing this sermon. This whole week I was thinking in my head, this isn't something that I struggle with. Oh, not me. You know, the Jews and the Gentiles, they had that in the first century. I can see, you know, racist people, they, they got their issue. No, no, no. It took a realization that I, I have this. In my heart, I have hostility in my heart. And it might be because somebody hurt me, said something offensive to me, but that wall of hostility goes up. Now this doesn't mean we throw the, the baby out with the bathwater, we just get away with the, you know, do away with the church because there's so much dysfunction. See, the gospel tells us that there's actually a way where this hostility is overcome. The only way that the church can be what she was made to be is to believe the gospel. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us, that, that in believing Jesus and looking at what Jesus has done, the, the walls of hostility are brought down. This us versus them language is destroyed. And if you look at verse 13, 14, and 15, you can see how he does it. It says, by his blood, in his flesh, in himself. It is Jesus who does this. Now, what does this mean? What this means is that Jesus dies for the sins of both us and them. He didn't just die for your sins and your particular struggles, but for the people on the other side of the fence. And in doing so, that wall of hostility crumbles because we realize that there's a profound similarity. That we were sinners. We were sinners and Jesus died for us and then now he makes us into a new people. He breaks down, verse 15 says, he breaks down the dividing walls of hostility so he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. See, what Jesus is doing, he's not just... 
He's not just creating dysfunctional family. He's not just building this spiritual building, this dwelling place. Jesus is making a new humanity. See, that's what the church is. There's a merging of two opposites that now become an entirely new category. And we can say that this has happened. This is a, a, a past tense reality that Jesus tore down the wall of hostility. This happened in his life, death, resurrection for believers. But actually what verses 21 and 22 also show us that this is a present tense reality. That there's something that's ongoing. That we have been joined together that we are assembled, we are adopted, that's past tense, we've been brought in the family of God, but we are being joined together. We are being built together. See, the spirit of God, which we spoke about last week, is at work doing this in real time. That day by day, moment by moment, the church is being cemented together, and that's, that's the thing that makes the church so strong. See, the, the mortar that holds the bricks together, the living stones together, isn't just like, you know, we like the same sort of music and we can agree on the same translation of the Bible and we have this general idea of what church should be. No, 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 the thing that holds us together is the gospel as the Holy Spirit is at work joining us together. And so in this sense, more and more, we are progressively growing into this reality that we are joined together. But it also means that Jesus is still building his church. There are pieces of the church, there are stones, there are living stones out there that have not yet found their way to be assembled together. That your friend, your neighbor, your coworker who doesn't believe in Jesus yet might be another one of those living stones that Jesus wants to put in his church and to dwell in. And so we see the spirit is at work. We're growing us to be like this, but also we're growing in numbers. And so in this sense, the gospel breaks down or has broken down the wall of hostility and keeps breaking down the walls of hostility so that we can have this unity, so that we can look at our brother that we might disagree with and say, you know, I, I don't agree with your, your politics, I don't believe with your lifestyle or what you're doing with your finances or whatever you might disagree with, but say, listen, first things are first, you and I, we're on the same team. This is how Jesus built his church. And the only way that we can be this kind of church is to keep the gospel front and center in our lives. See, it, when we say I believe in the church, we're not saying hey, look at how great we are, look at what we've done, look at how we've pulled ourselves together. No, 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 when we say I believe in the church, what we're saying is look at what Jesus has done to take a bunch of ragamuffins, a bunch of outsiders, and bring us together as one. That's the power of the gospel. See, we're not, this profession isn't about you or me. This is about what Jesus has done, what the Spirit is doing to bring us life and renewal. And the reality is that this is hard. To live this way, to believe in the gospel day in and day out, to actively believe, it's hard work. But it's absolutely worth it because in doing this, what's happening is Jesus is making us more beautiful. See, at the end of, uh, end of Revelation, Jesus, the church is called the bride of Christ. Jesus comes back and he retrieves for himself this bride, this one church, not brides, one bride. And she's been washed white. She's radiant in beauty and splendor. See, this is the power of the gospel that makes us more beautiful. 
And it's in this sense that Don Carson says that the church herself is an apologetic of the gospel. That means that the church, in living the life that we've been called to live, proves how strong the gospel is, how powerful Jesus is in our life, that the things that we found, uh, initially found as foundational are now destroyed. Those who are separated are now brought together. Those who were once hostile toward one another are now made as family because we share in the same blood of Christ that we both have forgiveness of sins and new life. There's a song that we sing, I think we sang it last week, that we, I went down to the Crimson River. I went, I went down, I was submerged, I, was, I went down a sinner, came up a saint. See, this is what it means to believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that, that together in Christ we are one body, that we are changed from sinners to those who are called righteous. We go from being wretches to saints. This is how we become a holy temple. This is how we become fit for God himself to dwell in us and with us. The church is made through the work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. See, one thing that we say in our church membership classes is that the church is this really concise statement. The church is God's people called out from sin by God's power for God's purposes. The church is God's people saved by God's power for God's purpose. The church is here to radiate his beauty and his glory, to make his name known. The Lord's table is a meal that helps us snuff out the hostility that is still in our hearts. First, in our approach, as we come to the Lord's table, we're told to examine our hearts. To, to, don't take the table in an unworthy manner. Don't take it in a way where you have unrepentant sin in your heart. So this means that right now, before we approach the table, we need to be asking, what are the walls of hostility that are still up in my heart? What are the things that cause me to have this us versus them language? And it's not, not enough to just identify it like, oh yeah, that, it's there. But the call is to repent, to turn away from those things, to, to believe the gospel in a way where we see that wall of hostility crushed. We're asking ourselves, what hostility am I responsible for? We repent of it, and the act of faith is to cling to the work of Jesus, that we've been forgiven. And then as you come we see that we're forgiven. This whole language of Ephesians chapter, there's peace, so we have peace with God, but, but it's sort of horizontal, but there's also, the, or the vertical peace, there's also this horizontal aspect of this peace that we experience. See, as we come to the table, you should look around. You should look and see who else is coming to share in the same meal. Because the reality is it's, it's those people who, who have that common profession that are being joined together. This is your family. This is the structure in sort of a localized sense that God is building us together. We are living stones being built together and the Holy Spirit is using this meal to bind us to one another. And so it's in this way that when we believe the gospel, when we see, when we have the freedom to admit 
and confess the reality and the honesty and be honest about the flaws of the church, but we also have this triumphant optimism because the power of the gospel is strong enough to overcome all of those flaws. And by God's grace, he's renewing us, he's making us more and more beautiful. And so, if you've pushed away from the church because it's been hurtful, I pray that Sacred City would be a place where the gospel is believed and you can find healing. I pray that this would be a place where, that would be attractive where you see all of the beauty of being the church would be lived out in its imperfect but, but honestly striving sort of way. By the grace of God that we'd be a church that radiates the beauty of God, promotes the unity of believers for God's glory and for our good. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done. We, we know that we are if it were up to us, we wouldn't be part of this church. We wouldn't be part of any church. We would have gone according to our own desires, um, given way to the walls of hostility that we've either inherited or constructed for ourselves, and we'd be cut off, but you, you tell us that we, have not, we are no longer cut off. We are no longer uh, distanced from you, and now, by the blood of Christ, we have unity with fellow believers. God, I pray that, that you would use this meal to strengthen and solidify our bond you would help your church to be as she ought to be. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.